Good morning, Grace. And everyone's a little bit tired now having to do double duty, huh, guys? That's tough. Hey, if you're new with us today, we're in the midst of a series uh, we've titled Just Lead. And we're walking through the book of 1 Samuel. And what we're really learning in, in 1 Samuel is about transitions, tragedies, and triumph. In particular, in this season of Israel's life and how God was walking them through that season. And so our title really captures that fact of how we lead is really how we live our lives through times of transition, tragedy, and triumph. And so today we're going to look at some really key principles about leadership and what it means to be a leader and what we should look for in leaders. So if you have your Bible with you today, we're going to be in 1 Samuel 16. 1 Samuel 16. If you have your worship guide, you can follow along with some notes and the page number is listed in there. There's some Bibles in the chairs in front of you, hardcover Bibles. I'd encourage you to open those up. That page number will take you there to that passage that we'll look at. And we're going to look at uh, 13 verses, the first 13 verses of 1 Samuel 16. Let's pray and then I'll, I'll give you a little overview of where we're going and, and what we're looking at today. Father, we love you and, and, and just praise you for the incredible gift we have in being able to open up your word as freely as we do, Lord. Uh, we can so often take this for granted. And it can just become a routine in our lives. But, Lord, as we're going to look at, even in particular today, the world that we live in uh, can so often shape our thinking, in particular about leadership. And yet, as we open your word today, we're going to see your consistent truths about what you think a leader is and should be. And honestly, Lord... When we even measure it up against the things in our world, uh, most people will agree even that they might reject the Bible. When push comes to shove, uh, we're looking for leaders that exemplify what we see in your word. And I pray that you will teach us these things today, that we won't just hear them, but we'll uh, trust them and we'll put them into practice in our lives, in our church, in our homes, and in our community, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. It's interesting, you don't have to look too far uh, to see in our media today just stories that so exemplify the truths that we're going to look at today. Uh, maybe some of you, it's hard not to, are following uh, the story about Harvey Weinstein, the Hollywood superstar in terms of movie maker that's been accused of all these different uh, sexual acts, uh, and yet it's interesting how Hollywood, and even a place that has so much of that stuff and perpetrates so much of that stuff, suddenly has standards when its people are doing the exact things that they are constantly promoting in movies in many ways. But here's what's interesting about our world in general when it comes to leadership. Our world, in our world, you get a job from your external traits, but you lose a job due to your internal character. Think about that for a moment. Most people in our world get a job because of external traits, because of skills or, or, or outside things that they have, how they look or what they perform, all these external things. That's what gets you a job. But when it comes to losing the job, most people lose the job due to internal character issues. That's exactly what we see even in that story. And today we're going to take a look at uh, some principles that God gives us about leadership 
and how he examines people, that these were written several thousand years ago. And we're going to see them again in the New Testament, written a few thousand years after that, how God's character and what he sees as a leader has never changed. It's been consistent from beginning to end. And in our world, it's constantly changing. We're constantly changing the standards, and we may have one standard for getting a person in, but suddenly uh, when they do violate that internal character thing, then now they want to dump them when that was never part of the consideration when they brought them in. And we're going to learn that God's truth, even about leadership, is always the best. So three things I want you to see from this passage uh, about leadership in particular. One is the challenge of leadership. We're going to see a challenge that's faced by anyone who wants to lead, whether it's in a very small setting or a large setting. This is one of the challenges of leadership, and we're going to see it in this passage. The second thing we're going to see is the deception of leadership, how we're often deceived into uh, choosing leaders in a certain manner and even developing ourselves as leaders in a certain way, and that deception that often lures us all into uh, its prey, you could say. And the last thing we're going to look at is the foundation of leadership. What truly is the foundation of good leadership? And we're going to see those three things in this passage. So follow along with me in 1 Samuel 16. We're going to look at verses 1 through 13. We're going to start by uh, reading verses 1 through 5 and see the first principle, the challenge of leadership. So if you remember, now we've seen at this point Saul being selected, the people's king, and, and Saul's being selected outwardly. He was head and shoulders above everyone around him. And obviously all these traits that you think you would want in a king and every nation at that time would want in a king, Saul had. But as we've watched the story unfold, Saul's character is what's caused his demise. It wasn't his external traits that got, it was his external traits that got him the job, but it was internal character that's now losing it for him because he continues to please people instead of pleasing God. And now in this transition, we're going to see God's going back to Samuel. And he's saying, okay, Samuel, now you're going to choose the king that I had in mind from the beginning. And we're going to learn what that involves. So verse 1 says this, The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you grieve over Saul, since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have provided for myself a king among his sons. And Samuel said, how can I go? If Saul hears it, he'll kill me. And the Lord said, take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord and invite Jesse to the sacrifice and I will show you what you shall do and you shall anoint for me him whom I declare to you. Samuel did what the Lord commanded and came to Bethlehem. The elders of the city came to meet him, trembling, and said, Do you come peaceably? And he said, Peaceably I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves, and come with me to the sacrifice. And he consecrated Jesse and his sons, and invited them to the sacrifice. Here's my first point for you, and it's the challenge of leadership that we see in this passage, and that's this. Leadership requires trusting God in the midst of my fears. Leadership requires trusting God in the midst of my fears. You know, I can appreciate Samuel's concerns in this passage. He's being real with his fear that, that if he were to go and anoint David, 
In his time, when King Saul is still on the throne, he's basically written his death certificate. I mean, that was high treason. It's still high treason today. If anyone in our nation, even in a democracy, we can say, well, that was in those kings, those dictatorships, they did that. We have the same kind of clause in our modern-day democracy. If anyone does anything that undermines the authority and threatens the authority of our top leader, the president, our laws call that high treason a spy, or any kind of act of war that does that. High treason is punishable by death, period. And so we can think that was real archaic, but the fact is, it's the same expression of what we have now to protect an established government. So Samuel was being very real, saying, wait a minute, you want me to go anoint the next king, commit an act of high treason, knowing that I might as well you know, just turn myself in as being killed. He was scared of that. But what I, what I like about Samuel is he takes it to the Lord. Samuel's real about his fears, but when all is said and done, when he takes it to the Lord, here's the difference between Samuel and Saul. Saul continues to put the fear of people above his trust in God. And after Samuel brings his fears to the Lord and, and God walks him through what he needs to do, Samuel trusts in the Lord more than he fears the people. That's the difference in their leadership. You see, leadership is not being fearless. There is always fears. All of us face fears. Leadership is having the courage to trust God even in the midst of your fears. And you see that in Samuel's life. I love how Proverbs 29 puts it. In a simple little proverb, it says, The fear of man lays a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord is safe. Notice the imagery that the, the writer uses. He uses the fear of man is laying a snare. If you think of a trap, if you've ever trapped animals, what does a trap do? You set up a trap, and then you put something that's alluring in it, that's attractive, and you wander over it, and you say, Hey, that looks kind of good, but you're, you're not aware of the setting that it's in. And so you reach in, that animal reaches in to get it, and bam, that trap snaps down over it, and at that time, it's too late. You've given in. And he's saying that's what the fear of man does. When you find yourself constantly wrestling with thoughts of what is this person going to think? What is that person going to think? What are they going to say about me? What if I, if I do this? this is what, you are wandering around that snare, and you're about ready to step in. But the proverb said, whoever trusts in the Lord will be safe. I can honestly admit personally that when I became a Christian, I had to make the most difficult or more difficult decisions in my life than I ever had to make when I was an unbeliever. It was way easier being an unbeliever because I could change my standards all the time and try to keep everyone happy. It never really worked, but you could always change your standards at that point. But as a believer, now suddenly you have an absolute authority in your life. And some of the most difficult decisions I've had to make came after I became a believer. Now, I had something greater to anchor it, but it didn't mean it was easier. In fact, I could take that one step further. The most dis difficult decisions I've ever had to make in my life have come during the years when I've been a pastor. Because you're constantly balancing that desire to please people and your commitment to please God. You see, no one wants to be rejected. No one wants to not be acceptable 
to people. And, and you have to make decisions in your life when you lead that may displease people in order to please God. And, and I can remember one in particular uh, situation, a conversation I had with a, a former leader in our church many years ago. Uh, and we were going through one of the most difficult situations we'd ever face as a church. You face tons of them. When you have this many people in one spot, you're always having to make decisions and deal with things that can be very difficult. And you have no idea how they're going to turn out. So we've learned to say, we're going to trust you, God. We're going to do it the right way, even though that may not be how the society does it or how everyone else does it. We're going to handle this in a way that honors you. And I was having a conversation with one leader in the midst of this situation. And this leader was saying, you know what, Chad, I'm, I'm leaving at this point. I'm stepping down. I'm out because I don't want to be around if this situation goes south. And I remember sitting there and looking that man in the eye and saying, I guess that's the difference between how you view leadership and how I view leadership. See, I don't believe a leader is only around when things are going well. I believe leaders are those who are here in the good times and in the bad times, and they choose to shepherd no matter what the outcome of situations. Those are some of the most difficult decisions I've ever had to make, and I haven't made all of them correctly. But I can tell you, just like Samuel, leadership is never as glorious as it looks from the outside. And when you're in it, you realize, just like Samuel realized, just like Saul realized, you're going to have to make difficult choices in the midst of those situations. And what you trust in, where your fears are, is, is will you trust God more than you'll give in to your fears? Second thing we're going to see is a trait that we see in leadership is the deception of leadership. So as the story goes on, so Jesse's now in Bethlehem. He's set up the sacrifice. He's invited Jesse with all of his sons, and all God has told him is that from amongst Jesse's sons, one of them is my future king. And so Jesse or Samuel sets up the sacrifice, and we see in verse 6 as it starts up, it says, When they came, meaning Jesse and all of his sons, he looked at Eliab, that was the oldest son. Uh, Samuel looked at him and thought, surely the Lord's anointed is before him. So it says he looked at him. So immediately from his look, Samuel thought, this must be the guy. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel. And he said, neither has the Lord chosen this one. Then Jesse made Shema pass by. And he said, neither has the Lord chosen this one. And Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. And Samuel said to Jesse, the Lord has not chosen these. Then Samuel said to Jesse, are all your sons here? And he said, well, there remains yet the youngest, but but he's keeping the sheep. You might be saying he's taking out the trash. That's kind of the equivalent, right? He's doing the minuscule jobs, you could say. And Samuel said to Jesse, send and get him, for we will not sit down till he comes here. And he sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. And the Lord said, arise, anoint him, for this is he. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers and the spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward and Samuel rose up and went to Ramah 
Here's my second point, is the deception of leadership, is I am prone to choose leaders based on external characteristics. I am prone to choose leaders based on external characteristics. Say that with me once. This is so important that you just recognize this is our nature. We're all prone to do this. So say, I am prone to choose leaders based on external characteristics. Just think about who you follow. Think about people that you look up to in general, maybe magazines or social media and all those things. Look at those people and then ask yourself honestly, why are you following them? Why do their lives intrigue you? Why do you want to emulate them? And I would be willing to bet that a good majority of those reasons are external. Now, it's not to say that external is bad in and of itself. We're going to see that in a minute. It's just to recognize that we are prone to make that the ultimate standard and foundation. And that's where we get ourselves into trouble. Look at this passage, and we'll see uh, what it says in here in, in 1 Samuel 16. It says, when they came, Samuel says, he looked on Eliab and thought, surely the Lord's anointed is before him. Now, this is kind of interesting. Here's Samuel, who's held up as a spiritual you know, godly character in this book, and was. And yet even him, when he sees Eliab right off the bat, he says, surely this is the Lord's anointed. He knew nothing about him other than what he saw before him. So what do you think he was evaluating him based on? His external characteristics. He had just come out of anointing Saul. He had just seen this blow up. Now, and now he's, he's right back, almost making a decision in the exact same way. So you see, we are prone to it. I don't care how spiritual, how mature you are. That's our natural bent. And we have to do something that causes us to think differently. But Samuel, or the Lord said to Samuel, do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. And then he tells us our problem. Man looks on the outward appearance. So even Samuel is doing that, and God reveals to us that we look at the outward appearance. We need to own the fact that we have that bent. You see, it was customary even in that day for them to choose the oldest for this kind of blessing. That was very common in, in Samuel's day and in their day that the oldest son would receive that blessing or whatever came into the family. In fact, even in any kind of monarchies, even in modern day monarchies, whenever there is a king, whenever that king had a son, it was the firstborn son that was always the heir to the throne. That's been true everywhere in the world. It just reveals this principle of how much we put external structures in place. Because if a person had five sons, it had no it made no difference what the character of those sons were. The firstborn son was always the heir. And what's interesting, if you've read the Old Testament at all, you see how many times God violates that principle and goes to the second or to the youngest to show that his values are not determined by the world's values, that he has a different standard for leaders. You know, we may not select firstborns in our modern society as Americans because, you know, we're so much brighter than these are her. But the truth is, we still overemphasize external things. Whether it's firstborn or any other external trait, the fact is, when we evaluate leaders, we look at their charisma, 
We look at their talents, we look at their education, what family they came from, what accomplishments we have. We, and again, there's nothing wrong in and of themselves about those things. But it's still, the problem is, it's all external. We are prone to doing just that. I, I read this interesting little snippet this week, and I want to read it to you because it really captures it in a unique way. It says, when Stephen Douglas and Abraham Lincoln were running for president of the United States in 1858, they engaged in several very famous debates. The transcripts of those debates were run in all of the newspapers. Now, Neil Postman, who is an author and a cultural critic who jotted these points down, points out that even in the height of that campaign, if Stephen Douglas or Abraham Lincoln had walked down the main street of almost any town in this country, no more than 4 or 5% of the people would have even recognized them. Now, what's interesting is visual media was almost non-existent back then. In other words, as Postman points out, they had to make their decisions on a national election by examining a person's ideas, not their image. Isn't that fascinating? In fact, many people would say because of how Abraham Lincoln looked, he probably wouldn't even have been elected. In fact, others have said about FDR, the only president in American history to be elected to office four times was before they put the term limits on. So obviously, his popularity was pretty significant. But many people would say FDR in our modern age would have never been elected to the office of president. Because if you know FDR, he was struck with polio as a young man and was in a wheelchair all his years in the presidency. And people have said, because we are so image-driven today that a person like that would have never been, had the opportunity to be evaluated by who they were on the inside because we are so enamored with external characteristics. What's interesting is most images only cover the exterior of a person. And in our social media-driven world today, it's not just some images, it's certain images, right? We put up the very best of the best often in all of our social media-type settings, and so we're only seeing a very small snippet of reality. Wouldn't it be interesting if social media took on maybe a little bit more of the bent of our actual media and glamorized the horrific things in life rather than the great things that we all like to capture and, and picture our lives as. See, many of us feel so horrible because all we do is get on our social media and see how great everyone else seems to look in these little snippets of their life that they portray for us. But what if social media was like real media? and they glamorize the horrific or the real things that are happening? What if Glamour Magazine instead took pictures of their models right after they rolled out of bed in the morning, and their two kids had been throwing up all night, and the night before they found out that their husband was fired from his job? What if they snapped those pictures? What if Better Homes and Gardens instead took a picture of your home the night after your small group pachanga? And all your buddies had eaten Takis and squished them and sat on your couch and, and there's empty, dried up bowls of queso and bean dip all over the house, soda all over the floor, and then your new puppy that you just got pooped and peed all over the hall that morning. What if they snap pictures of those events? Because the truth be told, our houses probably look more like that the majority of the time than they ever do 
like those magazine photo shoots. You see, social media and just media in general only enhances our problem that we are prone to look on the external of things than the external, than the internal. Well, the story continues, uh, and we're going to see the external characteristics as we're going to see in this next section aren't wrong in themselves. They're just not the basis for a good choice, and it's vital that we train ourselves to see past them. Here's what's so fascinating. If you look at a big picture, there hasn't been a war in history. There hasn't been any oppression. There's not an injustice. There's not a divorce. None of these crimes or anything in this world has ever happened because there was a lack of some kind of external trait in a person. Every single hurt, every crime, every war, every oppression, every injustice, every divorce, every crime is always due to a lack of internal character. And yet the truth be told, we still choose to put leaders in positions who have all the external traits that we think will make them successful and we fail to examine the internal. So let's look at this last little section, the last, last little point. It's really just reviewing some of the verses we looked at. And here's my final point of what the foundation of leadership truly is. Not the deception that we're prone to look at the external, but the foundation. And that's this. God chooses leaders based on internal character. God chooses leaders based on internal character. Let's look at verses 11 and 12 again in this passage in verse 7 as well. It says, but the Lord said to Samuel, do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature because I've rejected him. And then he tells us why. He gives us God's foundation. He says, for the Lord sees, not as man sees. Then he tells us how the Lord sees. The Lord looks on the heart. That's the first thing that God sees. And then we see it play out in the story when it says, then Samuel said to Jesse, are all your sons here? And he, Jesse, said, well, there remains yet the youngest, but behold, he's keeping the sheep. I mean, that's significant. The youngest would have never been thought of as being able to hold down a role like this. And that's kind of typical just in families sometimes. The youngest, are always the little ones at first, and it's not until they grow up that you really see what they become, but they're treated as the youngest all the time. But in this case, God saw past the externals of all the olders, and he said, it's the youngest one who has the heart to shepherd my people. Now, there's something really important in here that keeps us from going to the other extreme. In fact, whenever the authors of Scripture, ultimately the Holy Spirit, include these details, it's very important for us to understand. And it says later down there, it says, and he sent and brought him in. And then it describes David in that second to the last verse. It says, now he was ruddy and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. Now, now you might right away go, well, wait a minute, I thought God didn't choose leaders based on their external characteristics, and yet the author is including three external characteristics. That David, David may have been the most handsome of all of his brothers. He was a great warrior, we see, so he probably had a lot of characteristics that outwardly looked just great. And I think there's several reasons why that's there. First is, is let's look at the focus and we'll come back to that. The heart in scripture refers to a person's inward moral and spiritual life. 
It's how they think. It's what they desire. It's how they discern right and wrong. That's the inner heart. That's what is on the inside of a person. And it doesn't show up in any kind of external characteristics. And so when God says, that's what I'm looking at, he means I'm looking past what you see in the exterior and, and I'm getting to the content or the heart of that person. Now keep in mind, that's the standard. God is not saying, and we do often do this as Christians, or we just do it as people, that, hey, if God's not looking at this, if he's saying, hey, you don't have to be beautiful, you don't have to be rich, you don't have to be smart, you don't have to be educated, you don't have to come from this family or that location, then he must want people that are the exact opposite of that. So God's really just looking for ugly, dumb, inarticulate, poor people to, to lead his kingdom. And the problem with that is, is it's the same as that problem. We're still measuring based on what? External things. The point God is making is that neither that nor this matters. Disregard those things when it comes to making the foundation of your evaluation of whether someone has a heart to lead because those things don't matter. Their heart matters. They could be beautiful or they could be ugly in the world's eyes. God doesn't care. He doesn't look at those things to evaluate a person. He looks at their heart. David is an example of that. And he had to make his point. And then I believe he even put him, he is beautiful, he is handsome, he is ruddy, just to make the point that it's not the external characteristics. You don't have to be ugly to be a great leader. If, it was, if that was the case, I'd be the best leader around. Some of you will get that on your way out. But some of you are too dumb to figure it out. But that's all right. God's looking at your heart. I, I'm kidding, all right? God doesn't care about those externals. doesn't mean there's anything wrong with them. It just means that's not how he measures a person. I love how Proverbs 11.22 says this. I don't put it up on the screen, but you can jot it down. Proverbs 11.22, I always chuckle when I read this. It says, like a gold ring in a pig's snout, is a beautiful woman without discretion. Now, it's not picking on women there. It's picking on beauty in general. You can put a man or a woman in there, but the point of the proverb is this, like a, a gold ring in a pig's snout, meaning you see something shiny, you go, wow, that gold ring, that's really intriguing, but you fail to see that it's attached to this nasty animal right behind it. You're looking right past everything that's there, just caught up in that little shiny thing and what this proverb is telling us is that we do the same thing with beauty we get all enamored with external characteristics never stopping to think do we have any idea what kind of character is attached to this external and the proverb is is causing us to be shocked by it I love how Martin Luther King, in one of his famous speeches, said something you've probably all heard before, but maybe never connected it to this truth. He said, I have a dream that my four little children will one day live in a nation where they will not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. Guaranteed that Martin Luther King Jr. pulled that phrase from passages just like this where we suddenly can, for the first time, stop looking at where people come from on the outside or what they look like on the outside and start evaluating them honestly by who they are on the inside. 
I love how Paul wrote to Timothy, and this is on your little green sheet, and it's a measure of leadership. When Paul wrote to Timothy the characteristics he should look for when he chose leaders in the church, that early church, he says this, the saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer or an elder, he desires a noble task. Therefore, he says, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. Deacons, likewise, must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience and let them also be tested first, then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Here's what's interesting about these passages, and there's another one in Titus chapter 1 that's similar. But the focus on these things, if you go back and read them, the focus on almost every single trait in those passages is a person's internal character. In fact, it's arguable that only one trait in that whole list is any kind of external talent at all. And it's for an elder or an overseer, and it says they must be able to teach. It's one trait, one external trait or a talent. It's a God-given talent, but it's an external trait that God says as an elder, you need to be able to at least teach others the truths that you have learned. But every other trait deals with the internal character of a person. You know, as leaders in our church, as we go through this process, I, I wanna, I'll let you inside the window a little bit. Uh, we don't choose our leaders based on just the nominations that come in. It's never a popularity context. It's why we teach you to say, look for men that you see exhibiting these characteristics. And just because a person gets a whole bunch of votes here or nominations here, it does not mean they make it to that list to be affirmed by our congregation. We spend a number of our leadership meetings during this time going through every single name on that nomination list. And since we have about 16 guys on our leadership team, from our elders to our deacons, and we talk about this together. We go through there, and not in a non-gossip way, but in a very honest way, we say, hey, who knows anything about these people? What's their marriage like? What's their home life like? How do they handle things in, in the workplace? What do people say about them elsewhere? Do you know what their character is like? And I believe one of the most important jobs that we do as leaders is guard that what we call the leadership gate. Because when you allow unhealthy leaders onto a team, you don't just affect that team, you affect the whole church. And one of the most important things we can do is have a real conversation about where is the heart of this person. And and we're not looking for perfection because there'd be no leaders if that were the case. We're looking for people who exhibit these characteristics and are growing in them even if it's not perfectly. 
And oftentimes what we'll do is we may see someone is saying, hey, we've seen them grow a tremendous amount, but there's still some areas we feel like they need to grow in, and we'll meet, meet with them and say, hey, we're encouraged. People are noticing the change in your life and the maturity in your life. We want to consider you as a future deacon, and here's some areas we would like to see you continue to grow and mature in as a young man or an older man, whatever the situation may be. But the key is, is that this is a very important process as a church. Please take it seriously as you nominate people because God takes it very seriously. You know, I've made a a lot of poor choices in my years as a pastor picking leaders. I wish I could say I had a perfect record, but I've learned a lot from those mistakes. And there's two traits I've come to see that I've learned are indispensable, and, and they've been guides for me Uh, as I look for leaders in our church. One of them is humility. Humility is a huge trait I've looked for uh, for leaders for a a long time. And I've learned when I've overlooked that particular trait, regardless of how they look, I usually have gotten myself in trouble. But I look for things like, like one example is a red flag is, uh, you'll see people come into the church and this is common. Lots of people will come in and they feel like they got to give the pastor their spiritual resume. Right? And they got a list, I've done this, Pastor, and I did this, and I've read this book, and I know this, and do, what about this? Do you, what do you want? And they have to lay out their whole big spiritual resume, and they think that that's going to help them become a leader. Let me just give you a little hint. You just moved yourself to the very bottom of the list when you've done that. I've found that the best leaders we have selected are people that never had to tell us about their leadership ability, that I could just watch and see them faithfully serving, oftentimes unnoticed, not needing any pats on the back for what they're doing, but just faithfully serving in whatever realm God has them. And trust me, our guys, I've taught our guys, look for those kinds of guys. You're often not going to see them just pop out, but you're going to see them serving faithfully. Just like we saw David. Where's David? Well, he's off tending the sheep. If you know anything about David's story, a lot of the skills he learned for shepherding as a king, he learned when he was up in the hills shepherding some sheep. I just want to encourage you. If you feel like you're in a spot where no one recognizes what you're doing and you're not getting any accolades and you feel like you're at the bottom of the totem pole, God may have you exactly where he wants you to make you into the leader that he's shaping you to become. Don't try to climb up any faster than you need to. You don't want to miss the lessons that he has to teach you right where you're at. Another thing with humility I've learned is is conflict resolution. I, I am very hesitant to ever bring a man into a role of elder in our church until I've seen them work through a significant conflict in their life. And in particular, a conflict where they did not get their own way. I tell you what, all the accolades, all the degrees, all the money, all the connections in our city and the world will not reveal the heart of a man like a conflict will. And you'd be amazed at how many people look great and shiny and and are the most spiritual leaders on the outside, but you put them in the midst of a difficult conflict and you see a whole other aspect of their character that can blow up a church if they're led into a wrong spot. Those are just some lessons I've learned, and all of them relate to internal things. I've never had to let someone go or ask someone to step down because their external abilities or talents just didn't measure up. 
Every single time, it's been a character issue that has led to a person needing to be asked to leave. You know what's neat about this passage is, is we can just get hung up on these leadership principles and miss the ultimate leader that they point to. Samuel's inner character really showed through in his courage in his life to trust God when, when God sent him on a mission that could have been his own death. And Samuel goes, wait a minute, if Saul finds out, he's going to kill me. And God, in true fashion, offers a sacrifice. He says, Samuel, take a sacrifice. Trust me that if you'll take this sacrifice and, and use that as your excuse for being there, then you'll be able to accomplish the work that I've given you in anointing my next king. And Samuel shows his inner character by having the courage to trust God in the midst of his fear of Saul. But there's a greater Samuel that I believe this whole book points to. Because Samuel was a man like any of us. His heart was imperfect like all of our hearts are imperfect. But there is a greater Samuel who didn't just trust in a sacrifice that God would offer. He became that sacrifice. This greater Samuel, Jesus Christ, didn't just risk his life to go and anoint a new king like Samuel did. He gave his life. He knew full well when he came down to do the work that he was sent to do, that there is no escaping the cross that would take his life. And Jesus demonstrates for us an inner beauty, an inner character that's the heart of what God looks for when he looks at you and I. In fact, even how he did it, and we see in the scriptures in Isaiah chapter 53 and Isaiah 52, he says this about Jesus predicting what he would look like at that crucifixion. It said he had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. It says his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. Jesus the most beautiful being in the universe humbled himself to the point of being the most ugly thing that this world had ever seen in the midst of performing the most beautiful act of love this world had ever known. Jesus was emphasizing that what God looks at and what he values most has nothing to do with our external because in the greatest act of love, Jesus was the most ugly he could have ever possibly been. And he humbled himself to take your ugliness and my ugliness upon himself so that he could offer us a beauty, he could offer us a character, a heart that you and I could never achieve on our own. We could never accomplish on our own. He offers it to you and me. And until we come to a place in our lives where we recognize his ugliness on the outside is a picture of our ugliness on the inside. And nothing we do can cover that up. No makeup and no clothing and no accomplishments, no money, no jobs, no education can ever cover up and cause God to not see the brokenness inside us. We need someone to change our heart. 
And Jesus did that for us in the cross. Let me just share with you two reasons and we'll close with these thoughts. First, Jesus needed to show us that true beauty begins on the outside. Excuse me, on the inside. He performed that act of true beauty when he looked his absolute worst. And the second thing we see is that Jesus needed to show us how much it would cost, truly cost, to change our hearts. See, isn't it amazing how much we will spend to look good on the outside? We'll cut ourselves, we'll inject ourselves, we'll suffer ourselves, we'll expand ourselves, we'll shrink ourselves, we'll educate ourselves. We will go bankrupt trying to make ourselves look better on the outside, trying to cover up our brokenness on the inside. And Jesus is telling us, spend all you want, sacrifice all you want. None of those things can meet the true need you have on the inside. And so he was willing to make the most costly sacrifice this world has ever known to show you and I how much we need a Savior. Jesus did that for you and me. And until you recognize that you can never become acceptable by covering your internal ugliness with external beauty, until you recognize that Jesus takes your internal ugliness. You can't earn it. You can't achieve it. You can't pay for it. You needed someone to die for it. And until you recognize that he took it for you on the cross and trust in him, you will be stuck always trying to cover up what you know is true on the inside. So let me just leave you with a thought today. You see, we are so prone to measuring all of our external traits. We measure our waistlines. We measure our weight. We measure our hair count. I've heard some people do that. We measure how many wrinkles we have, how many degrees we have, how much we have in our bank account. You name it, we measure it. But all those measurements are external. What if we started looking at ourselves the way God looks at us? What if we started asking questions? What if we started making measurements like this? Do you find yourself more patient with situations that once used to upset you? What if we measured patience rather than our popularity? What if we measured things like self-control? I mean, do you demonstrate more self-control today than you did, say, a year ago or two years ago or five years ago when you faced the same situations? Or, or how about generosity? Do you find that you're so much more generous now than you were two or three or four years ago? Or do you lie to yourself and keep trying to measure yourself by how much you have coming in as opposed to how much is going out? How do you respond to criticism? Has that changed? Are you less anxious? Do you find yourself having more peace even when things around you seem to be falling apart? Have you ever taken the time to actually ask yourself, am I being changed on the inside? Because that's what Jesus came to change for you. That's what he came to transform for you. 
And imagine if we were a church that, that no longer needed to look at what kind of car you drove to church in, what kind of clothes you were clothed in, what neighborhood you came from, what people you associate with, what education you have, how much you have in your bank account. What if none of those things were things that we even noticed about each other? Because we are too busy watching what God was doing in the hearts of individuals. Imagine a church that was willing to let go of so many of the external things we think give us value because we realize the greatest value we have to bring to our community is the value of an internal change that only Jesus Christ can do in our lives. Imagine that church. Let's pray.